Thank you, dear. I contemplated giving her a kiss on the way by, but I didn't want to make our kids embarrassed. Yeah, I heard the thank you. They're kind of funny that way. Well, good morning. My name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. I know I say this a lot, but I really mean it, and that is, it is so good to be here with you today. I truly love your fellowship. I love your encouragement. It's always refreshing to my soul after a long, hard week in the world. So as you might recall, uh, we're taking a short break from our study of 1 Corinthians to do a two-week mini-series on giving in concert with our fall offering, which is today at the end of our service. We have the privilege of giving to the work of God. It's an exciting time. Now, we're not doing this. We're not preaching on giving in order to pressure you in to give more. Okay, this isn't a telethon. You know, we're going to sit here until everyone responds. We're not doing it to make you feel guilty. But we as a staff feel it's important for us to share the entire counsel of God, and that's even subjects that make us feel uncomfortable. This is actually the second year in a row that we've stopped and taken a look at giving. Last year, I preached a single sermon entitled The Grace of Giving, and in it, I tried to do a thorough but very broad overview on the New Testament principles of giving. And so we looked at the wrong reasons to give, the right reasons to give, and the results of godly giving. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that podcast if you weren't able to be here with us or if you simply need a review. This year, as Justin and I discussed what we wanted to preach across these two weeks, we felt led to talk about the joy of finances. And so last week, if you remember, Justin started by teaching us on the joy of contentment. Today's sermon is entitled, The Joy of Generosity. Now, I originally had it titled, The Joy of Giving, and that may be what's in your worship guide. But at the last minute, I decided to change it to The Joy of Generosity because as I studied this more, I realized that there's a difference between giving and being generous. And so that's going to be the title that we have today. My goal is actually very straightforward. It's not easy, but it's straightforward. And that is this. I want to shift our mentality from how much does the Bible say I have to give and why to that of living radically generous lives. From giving is that thing I do once a week or once a month, you know, depending on my pay schedule, to something I do all week long. From seeing it as a duty or an obligation that I have to follow to seeing it as a privilege I get to give from drudgery to joy. And I believe if we are radically generous people, everything else will take care of themselves. Budgets will be balanced and ministries will be completely staffed. But most important, we will impact the lives of people as we meet both their spiritual and their physical needs. Now hear me on this. Please hear my heart. I'm not here, again, I want to emphasize this. I'm not here to beat anyone down or or to make you feel guilty. If you leave here today and you feel obligated to give, then I failed. My goal is to break us free from this chains of duty and obligation so that we can experience the joy of generosity. And believe me, I'm preaching to myself more than anyone else. 
Many of you here are modeling joyful generosity, and I say press on. Keep going. This church has always been a generous church, and I hope we will continue to be well into the future. If you've not yet discovered the joy of generosity, I hope today that it spreads to you like wildfire. So let's open in a word of prayer and ask that the Lord bless our time together, okay? Lord God, we are humbled by your love and the many good gifts that you've given to us. I pray we would be faithful to your word as we open it, as we study it, and the Lord, allow it to penetrate our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So our main text this morning is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, and then again chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, although we will be studying other passages as well. And from that, we're going to pull out three points, and that's going to be this. Number one, we're going to look at the examples of joyful generosity. Number two, we're going to look at the explanation for joyful generosity. And finally, we're going to look at the enemies of joyful generosity. And so let's start with the first one, the examples of joyful generosity. Look with me at 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1. Paul says this. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed into a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, let me remind you what Paul is talking about. Okay, let's put this in a little bit of context. This is the tale of three churches. We have the church in Jerusalem, we have the church in Macedonia, and we have the church in Achaia. Okay, let's look at the map. I want you to see where these are. Macedonia and Achaia were the two provinces into which the Romans divided the Greek empire when they conquered it. In Achaia, you have the major cities of Corinth and Athens. I'm not sure that you can see that there. That's it's kind of that middle arrow. So these are the people that we have been studying as we've studied the book of 1 Corinthians. This is Achaia. In Macedonia, we have the major cities of Thessalonica, Philippi, and Berea. Right, you might recognize those names as the Thessalonians and the Philippians. Obviously, these two groups, the Macedonians and, the, and those from Achaia, were Gentiles, while the church in Jerusalem was made up of Jewish believers. Now, the church in Jerusalem was very poor. And so Paul had decided that he was going to collect money from the Gentile churches and give it to the Jews, the the Jewish believers. We can read about that in Romans chapter 15, verses 26. His reason was that since the Jews shared their spiritual blessing with the Gentiles, that the Gentiles owed it to share in their material blessings back to the Jews. Now, the church in, in the Corinth was eager to respond, right? They heard this, and they said, yes, we're on board. Let's do it. And Paul says, yes. And so then he goes back to the Macedonians, and he says, hey, guys, the Corinthian church has pledged to give. And so the Macedonians just says, yes, we want in too. And so they pledged to give. Now, meantime, even though they were very poor, by the way, in the meantime, the, the Corinthians, they stalled. Maybe it was complacency. I don't know what it was, but they kind of failed to follow through on what they were doing. So Paul has to go back to them and says, hey, I thought you pledged to give. Look what the Macedonians are doing. They're very poor, and yet they're overflowing in generosity. And that's what we're reading about here. We're reading about Paul's encouragement to the Corinthians. Look what the Macedonians are doing. Now, there are three phrases in this text that just kind of pop. They just stand right out at you, and I'm going to highlight those. 
the abundance of joy, extreme poverty, and wealth of generosity. Abundance of joy, extreme poverty, and wealth of generosity. Let's break down that first phrase, abundance of joy. Right? That's one of the main themes of this two-week mini-series is joy. And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time just defining what joy is. This is something that, um, that I've been preoccupied with as of late. In fact, you might remember a few months ago when I was running around and jumping and screaming up here. Okay, Joy, rejoice, be joyful. So what is joy? Joy is a feeling of inner gladness and delight. But in the New Testament, it almost always signifies a feeling of happiness that is based on spiritual realities, not physical circumstances. Now, as I've been studying this, I've come across something that I find fascinating. And it's a little bit technical and definitely outside my area of expertise, but I just got to show it to you. So please bear with me for a minute. The Greek word for joy that is in the New Testament is the word, it looks like to us, chara, C-H-A-R-A. I can't pronounce it. It kind of involves like this tongue roll thing, and it's very hard to do. But that, that, that's it, right? C-H-A-R-A. We're going to see that it's found multiple places in the New Testament. But I want to show you another Greek word. It's one for grace. C-H-A-R-I-S. Now, do you see the similarity between these two words? The Greek word for joy is rooted in the Greek word for grace. Grace, as defined in the New Testament, is that which affords joy, pleasure, and delight. It's the merciful kindness by which God exerts his holy influence upon souls, turns them to Christ, keeps them, strengthens them, and increases them in the Christian faith. So joy is a result of God's grace. Or if you want to flip it around, our God's grace should produce joy. What's that mean? It means that those who have experienced the grace of God should be the most joyful people in the world. Let's look at a few examples of this from the New Testament. I'm just going to read a number of verses to you. And I want you to see the connection between joy and Jesus Christ. Okay? Let's look at Luke 1.14. I'm just going to read these. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Luke 2.10, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Matthew 2.1, When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. John 16.20 and 22, this is Jesus now himself talking to his disciples, says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Matthew 28, 8. So they departed quickly from the, t- the tomb with fear and great joy. Acts thirteen fifty two, And the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Romans fourteen seventeen. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness. The last one we'll look at is Revelation 19.7. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride, that's us, the church, has been made ready. Friends, the Christian life is one of joy. 
from the announcement of Jesus' birth until we are with him in heaven. Joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, Joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There's only one thing that can give true joy, and that is the contemplation of Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him, I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians should be characterized by joy. We've seen the Savior, and we are complete. Now, I'm not saying that life is going to be easy. I'm not saying that we're not going to go through times of great grief or worry or stress. And if I have to be honest, there are many days I wake up, and you feel the weight of the world, and you just have to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, I choose joy. Help me to be joyful today. The New Testament describes several spiritual circumstances that are associated with the joy in a believer, and, that, and that's this. I'm going to read these for you. The fellowship with the Father and the Son should bring and produce joy. The word of the Lord, prayer, the repentance of sinners, the presence and fellowship of believers, and finally giving. Giving is a result of joy and produces joy. Giving comes from an inner feeling of happiness and delight in Jesus and perpetuates that same feeling. This is what we learned from the Macedonians. The thought of giving to the Jerusalem church was so exciting to them that they were all in, right? Despite their extreme poverty, they let joy triumph over fear, joy triumph over worry, and joy triumph over regret. They followed the prompting of the Holy Spirit and responded with a gift of exceeding measure. Right? This word for generosity is like liberality. It's just like abundance. It's just give it out. The Macedonians discovered joyful generosity. I've recently read a book uh, entitled, I Like Giving, The Transforming Power of a Generous Life, okay, written by Brad Formsma. Now, this is not a deep theological treaty on giving. Okay? It's, it's anything but that. It's really nothing more than a compilation of very inspiring stories that then the author ties back to some biblical principles. Um, it is very inspiring. And uh, in it, Brad says this. He says, before we, meaning his family, became givers, our lives were pretty empty. We were living the American dream, and we were good at it. But it turned out to be more of a nightmare than a dream. Ultimately, it was superficial. When your life is just about your next restaurant dinner, the next remodeling project, or the next lifestyle upgrade, it's not rich. Sure, money can buy things, but money can't buy joy. Joy doesn't come from filling your life with stuff. Joy comes from giving your life away. Brad discovered the joy of generosity. As we've seen, what he describes and what the, what the Macedonians have modeled 
is the practice of the early church. This is what they did. This was the norm, not the exception. Look with me again at Acts chapter 2. We're going to read verses 44 and 45. Here we see the church in its infancy, probably just days or weeks after it had started. And we read this. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. A couple chapters later, Acts chapter 4 and verse 32, it says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Wow. The early church had discovered the joy of generosity. Now, you might think, well, you know, that, that was then. That's just maybe the way the Jewish culture was. But, you know, this is America, right? This isn't, this isn't how we do things. That would never happen today. That's crazy. And you're right. It seems extremely radical. You mean start stealing your stuff and giving it away? So I thought I would read for you a testimony from our author, because this hit me like a sledgehammer. Um, So bear with me just for a second. I'm going to read this. It's a little bit lengthy, but it's pretty gripping, okay? So here's what he says. He said, we had bought a convertible, and we thought it was the perfect car. One day I was jogging around our neighborhood. I kept passing the convertible and thinking, Everything about that car is right. I must have taken one pass too many, though, because all of a sudden I was hit by a powerful impression. That nudge. And I knew I was supposed to give the car away. A few weeks later, Laura confirmed what I had felt. That was his wife. Our oldest son, Danny, who was five at the time, chimed in on our conversation. He asked his mom what she thought about giving the car away. And after considering it for a moment, Laura decided that she thought it was the right thing to do. There was a sense then that we were entering into something bigger than ourselves. Even though we loved that car, we were excited to see what adventure giving it away might be. I took the car to a local dealer and explained that we wanted to sell it and donate the money to the group we supported in India. The dealer seemed intrigued and agreed that as long as I paid the commission, he would be happy to sell it for me. After running some inspections, he told me it would cost an extra $1,500 in repairs before it would be ready to sell. I gulped. Seriously? I'm selling this car to send the money to other people, and now I have to make it perfect for the next owner? But I was committed, so I paid for the repairs, and the car was put on the lot. Months went by. Nothing happened. Finally, late in the spring, one of the managers at the dealership called me and recommended that we take it to a local car auction. I thought about it for a minute and decided that selling the car really wasn't primarily about money, but about our hearts. So I agreed. Even if the car sold for less than it was worth, it was the right thing for us to do. We all loved that car. But our hearts were being prepared to put the needs of others first. 
Even so, I felt it would be a waste if it sold for too little. The auction started, the bidding priced our beloved convertible well below wholesale. Then all of a sudden, something amazing happened. Honestly, it was one of those pinch-yourself moments. It seemed surreal. Two people started bidding as if our car was the hottest item in town. I mean, where did that come from? The bidding shot up quickly to a few thousand dollars over retail, and we watched in disbelief as a dealer paid more than he could ever sell it for. Later, we found out that he had promised his wife he would get her a convertible and was willing to pay almost any price. How awesome is that? We were amazed it had the car sold, and it was a privilege, a privilege, to be able to send the money to India. But more important than the money was the lesson it taught us about letting go. Even though we enjoyed that car, we've never regretted giving it away and the adventure that it brought. Giving will certainly remove boring from your life. Wow. I mean, that's big, right? That's bold. It's scary. And if i got to be honest, I don't know I could do that, right? Wow. But think about it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the impact we could have on this body of believers here, on this community of Brownsburg, and on the world if we could practice joyful generosity? I mean, can you imagine the responses of people? Can you imagine the looks on their eyes and their, on their faces and the questions like, why would you do that? Why would you give your stuff away? The impact now, remember, is felt by both the giver and the receiver because the giver gets joy and the receiver has thanksgiving. And here's the amazing thing. If you develop a life of generosity, you will never run out of things to give, ever. God will make sure of that. Let's check out our, our second passage, 2 Corinthians 9.10. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower, he, that's God, we're the sower, the seed is the money, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Last week, Pastor Justin introduced to us this idea that giving should be more like a roundabout than a cul-de-sac, right? Money going out, money coming in, and we just keep sending it out. So if you follow this model, our roundabout should look more like one in Carmel and not like one in Lebanon, right? You know, you've been to a roundabout, let's say, in Lebanon, and there's just no cars. There's nobody going out because there's nobody coming in. But you go to Carmel, and I mean, it's like chaos. Cars going in and out and in and out. That should be us. We're the conduit by which God ministers to the world. I give it out, God gives me more. I give it out, God gives me more. And we just keep doing that. That's what he says. God will never uh, cease to give us what we need to continue to be generous. So the Macedonian church and the early church both give us powerful examples of joyful generosity. Why would they do that? What would cause them to do that? And let's look at this. What's the explanation for joyful generosity? And what we're going to see is ultimately joyful generosity is found in the nature of God. It's all rooted in his nature and in his work. I'm going to present to you three reasons, and I think these are built in a logical progression. The first one being that God himself defines joyful generosity. 
That's who he is. And when we talk about who he is, we talk about his nature, we talk about his attributes, one of those attributes being love, right? We sang about it earlier, the love of God. Theologian Wayne Grudem defines the love of God as this, God's love means that God eternally gives of himself to others. The attribute of God shows that it is part of his nature to give of himself in order to bring about blessing or good for others. The eternal love of the Father for the Son, the Son for the Father, and both for the Holy Spirit makes heaven a world of love and joy because each person of the Trinity seeks to bring joy and happiness to the other two. We see from Scripture God's giving all the time, right? He gives good gifts to mankind. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. He gives us rain. He gives us sun. He gives us food. He gives us drink. And not just any food and drink, but flavors. And he gives us creation, but it's not bland. There's colors. And we get to go feel the warmth and the cool, and we get to experience the turning of the leaves and the growing of leaves. These are gifts from God. In fact, I think God gives us more gifts than we can count, and I think on a daily basis we totally lose track of the gifts of God. And we never even acknowledge him giving them to us. But beyond that, he gave us Jesus Christ, his son, in the ultimate act of giving and generosity to redeem us for himself. You know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Friends, our God gives. Our God defines joyful generosity. The second thing we see is that humans, right, us, we are created in God's image. We read this in Genesis 1.26. We are made in the image and the likeness of God. That means we reflect his character, and we possess the same attributes that he has to some extent. So, we have the attribute of love. And that means we were created to give of ourselves to bring about blessing or good for others. That's who we are created to be. Not surprisingly, science supports what the Bible clearly teaches. There's been a number of studies done, one of them by Elizabeth Dunn, professor at the University of British Columbia, and Michael Norton, professor at the Harvard Business School. They conducted research to see if spending money can buy happiness. Their work was published in a book called Happy Money, The Science of Smarter Spending, and they presented it in a TEDx talk in November of 2011. The conclusions confirmed what the Bible clearly teaches. While spending money on ourselves doesn't improve our happiness, spending money on others does. And the only factor in their study that consistently showed correlation between spending and happiness was spending money on others. The more people spent money on others or gave it away, the happier they reported being. So God defines joyful generosity And we were created in his image, therefore it is our nature to give, to be generous. Our third and final point is that Christians have been saved by grace. So while we were created to be givers, sin kind of changed, right? It didn't do away with our nature, but it corrupted it. And so now we struggle with greed, and we struggle with lack of contentment, and we struggle with the love of money and everything that goes with it. But the gospel 
changes everything. Pastor Justin made reference last week to Acts chapter 20, verses 32 and 35, or through 35. And I want to look at that passage in just a little more detail. As you recall, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem near the end of his life, and he knows that prison and hardship await. And he knows that there's going to be people he never sees again. And so he calls together the elders from the church of Ephesus, from Ephesus to meet with him so he can say his farewell. And he uses the opportunity to give them his, his parting comments. If we look at Acts 20, 32, we read, Now, Paul speaking, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now remember, this is the last time that Paul is talking to these people. And so think about it. If this is going to be the last time that you're talking to them, you're going to make sure you say the most important things, the things you want them to remember. And so what does Paul choose to say? Well, he says two things. He says, first, I commend you to the word of grace. In other words, remember the gospel. Believe the gospel. Live the gospel. And then kind of in the strange second thing he brings up is live generous lives. It's like, live the gospel. Live generous lives. Are you talking about two completely different things? I don't think so. I think the two are connected. Believe the gospel, live the gospel, and live radically generous lives. So we've been created in the image of God and saved by his grace. That means we should be living joyfully generous lives. So why don't we? Right? Why do we struggle? And that's because there are a number of enemies to joyful generosity. There are probably many things that could be listed as enemies to joyful generosity, many things that would keep us from doing it. Last week, Pastor Justice gave us two, or Pastor Justin gave us two. He gave us the lack of contentment or greed and the love of money. So I'm not going to spend any more time talking about those. I want to give you two more. So we're going to look at two. I'm going to spend more time on the first one than the second. But the first one is obligation, this idea of obligation. I believe this is the biggest enemy for most well-intending people, is the the idea of duty and obligation. Obligation robs us of joy, takes the fun out of giving, and it robs us of being generous, right? And I'm going to show you why I think that's the case. I, I think this is something that we all struggle with, me included, It's just our tendency to try to boil the Christian life down into a list of requirements or obligations that we're supposed to follow. And so, you know, if we're honest to ourselves, we'd probably say we really just kind of want to meet the bare minimum requirements. Kind of like my chemistry students, right? Just tell me what I have to do to get a C, and I'll be happy. Right, Cole? Amen. (laughs) Right? Just the minimum requirements. That's all I need. Then I'll get it done and I'll move on. And so it's like, 
Read my Bible. Okay, check. Pray, check. Be nice to others. I think I can do that, check. Share the gospel, if I have to, check. Give, okay, check. Done. I met my requirements. Now I'm going to go on my merry way. And so then we ask ourselves the wrong question. We then ask the question, uh, how much does the Bible say I have to give and why? Okay, because I, I, I just need to know. Just give me the number. I'm going to write that down. Then when I get it done, I'm done, and I can move on. But think about this. Can you name one thing in your life that you are obligated to do that brings you joy? And I'm, I'm thinking there's not many things. Because obligation and joy are kind of like opposites. Right? Joy we reserve to things that I get to do, I'm privileged to do, I'm excited to do. Obligations are a drudgery. Now, I personally do not believe that the New Testament states an amount that we are obligated to give. Now, we can discuss the matter of tithe another time. I don't think that that's the New Testament principle on giving. I believe the New Testament principle on giving is joyful generosity. And I'm going to read for you 2 Corinthians 9, 5 through 7. I don't remember if that will be on the screen or not. So I'm going to read it. In 9, 5 through 7, Paul says, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. He's still talking about this gift for the Jerusalem church. So that it may be ready as a willing offering, not as an exaction. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I think that putting a percentage, I may be stepping out on a limb here, but I think that putting a percentage on giving is like us putting a percentage on Bible reading and prayer. That's like saying, if you want to be following the New Testament, you must, you must read your Bible 10% of your day and pray 15%. Or you must, you must read, you're obligated to read your Bible 30 minutes a day and pray for 45. And I think that's the wrong mentality, right? We should want to read our Bible and to pray as much as we can. Now, I understand we have other responsibilities and obligation that keep us from being able to do that. But we should be praying all day long. We shouldn't be limiting ourselves to a small percentage of prayer. Why do we do the same thing with giving? Why do we put a percentage on it? Now, you might be saying, well, if, but, if, but, but if we take away the 10%, then nobody's going to give. And I say, if that's the case, we have bigger problems, right? Because then that says we don't have a heart that has been changed to give. And, and, and what about the flip side? What if we take that away and I no longer keep track of it and we say, I'm going to give 15%. I'm going to give 20%. I'm going to give 30%. What if I lose track of how much I give? What if I just start meeting needs and just start handing out money? And I don't, I don't know how much I gave. I'm not keeping my tax receipts. I don't see giving as an obligation. I do not see it as a requirement. I see it as a privilege. We have the privilege to give. You mean I get to give? Oh, how much do you need? Right? That's a privilege. 
we go back to our text, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is going to be in verse 3. So this is immediately after Paul talks about, for in a severe test of affliction and their abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. It says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And so Paul's like, you know, you know what, Macedonians, you, you don't have to give that much. No, we want to give. We're begging you. Can we please take part in this? No, 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 no. Yes, please. I want to give. They saw that as a privilege. It was not an obligation. Don't let obligation rob you of the joy of giving and of the joy of being generous. The last enemy that I want to give is that of complacency. This one's a little more subtle. I'm not going to spend quite as much time on it. But I think this happens to us a lot. I know it does for me. We just seem to get disconnected, right? We, we, we go about our lives, and we're so focused on tasks, because I'm, I'm such a task-oriented person. It's like, i got to get my stuff done. Don't leave me alone. i got to get my stuff done. And I lose sight of the people around me. And I don't let my heart feel the compassion that I should have as I see people in need, spiritually and physically. And so we just kind of get complacent. We, 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 we fail to think that, you know what, not everybody has their needs met. Not everybody's heard the gospel. And if I could just keep myself reminded of that on a daily basis. And so one of the things I would encourage you to do is every morning, when you spend a little time in the Word and you're praying, say, Lord, give me compassion for the people around me today. Give me opportunity to be a blessing so that I might meet their physical needs and I might meet their spiritual needs. And then as you go about your day and you feel that, I, I guarantee you, you're going to feel that prompting of the Holy Spirit. And then just act on it, right? Just be a blessing to others, whether they ever know it or not, whether they ever thank you or not. But just give and just be generous. So we've seen some examples of joyful generosity. We then looked at the explanations for joyful generosity and then a few enemies. I want to close by just reading a few passages of Scripture, okay? I don't want to talk about money anymore. I just want to read these passages of Scripture. I'm not going to provide any commentary on them. After I read them, then I'll close in prayer, and then we'll go into our time of communion. Now, this is open to anyone. You don't have to be a member of Parkside, but as long as you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're welcome to take, take place in communion. We'll have just a few minutes of silence before we come forward to get the bread and the juice. I would encourage you to take that opportunity to just thank Jesus for the ultimate act of joyful generosity. Thank him for what he's done. And if you feel led by the Spirit, then pray, Lord, help me to be a blessing to those around me. I want to be joyfully generous. Then you can come forward, take part of the juice and, uh, and the uh, bread. Then the musicians will start um, playing, will sing. And following that, then we'll have our fall offering. So let me read these before I pray. Just listen. 
I'm going to go back to John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we cannot thank you enough for the good gifts that you pour on us every day, all day. And I'm sorry, Lord God, that we often don't stop and recognize that and that we never give you thanks and we never recognize you as the giver. Lord, I pray that we would be more observant. Thank you for the world that you've given, the creation, the colors, the flavors, the joys, that are, the friendship, the people, the fun. But Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ. And Jesus, we can't thank you enough for the joyful generosity that you showed in actually dying to give us life. I can't comprehend it, Lord. God, these are hard truths. These are hard principles. Our culture is just giving us the exact opposite. But Lord, I want to be like the Macedonians. I want to be like those in the early church. And I pray that you help us to break free from obligation, from greed, from complacency. Lord, please give us a heart of compassion that we, so that we see people around us. And it's just like, I got to give. I got to tell them the gospel. I want them to know about Jesus. And Lord, I pray, please help us to see fruit from that. And Lord, keep giving us, please, as you promised, so that we can continue to be generous and we can continue to spread the seed. Lord, I pray even as we take our fall offering today, I, I, can't, I can't wait to think about the things that you're going to do with that money in India and for the school and in Brazil. How exciting it is, Lord, what a privilege it is for us to take part in this and to see your name glorified. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.